Pastor Xavier Reese says, there's no problem impossible when you do the math God's way. Listen, whenever you read anything in Scripture, don't ever leave this factor out of the equation. God. The Red Sea parts. The walls of Jericho fall down. The sun goes back a certain amount of degrees. There's nothing impossible for God. In fact, you remove God from the equation of your life, everything will be impossible. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. When we hear such improbable stories from the Bible, like God commanding Joshua to march around Jericho for seven days, or Elisha claiming healing for Naaman the leper by having him dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, it's just as astonishing to hear of God's servant obeying the implausible command in each case. And today's Simple Truth study contains an equally puzzling task God used to draw the attention of the nation of Judah, which was met yet again with the faithful obedience of the prophet Jeremiah. Here's Pastor Xavier with the continuation of a Simple Truth study drawn from Jeremiah chapter 13. The prophets of the Old Testament were men who were called by God to do mainly two things, to proclaim the sin of the people and to proclaim repentance to the people. Many of the prophets of the Old Testament, as you know, were called to do some bizarre charades to communicate their message. Isaiah the prophet was called to walk naked and barefooted. Hosea the prophet was called to marry a prostitute, Gomer, as a picture of God's love for Israel, who he would forgive, who he would cleanse, who he would take back to himself. Now, Jeremiah the prophet, in like manner, is prepared by Yahweh to preach his fifth sermon here by the object of a sash to reveal the ruined condition of the people due to their own sin and is laid out for us in three very progressive movements. First, we have the proclamation of Yahweh to the prophet in verse 1 and 2. Then the instructions of Yahweh to the prophet in verse 3 through 7. And then finally, the interpretation by Yahweh to the prophet in verses 8 through 11. Notice first in verse 1. The prophet Jeremiah was commanded by Yahweh to obtain a sash. Now the prophet Jeremiah was to put his sash around his waist. Notice that. And he was not to put any water in it. The prophet being prohibited from washing this sash. Must have caused it to become quite dirty. As he ministered from day to day. It's not being washed. This must have caught the eyes of the people. It became dirtier and dirtier, symbolic of Judah's defilement and her sin. And so each of us, as we walk in this world, we get dirty by sin. Even as Christians. We don't practice it any longer. We don't live there, but we, we fail. We fall short. The proclamation of Yahweh to the prophet was to teach the prophet about their sin. Notice secondly here. The prophet was to take the sash from his waist and to go to the Euphrates rivers and hide it there in a hole of rock. Now, it would take approximately two months if he went straight there. And he did as he was told. The prophet did not ask why, but merely obeyed the Lord. Now at this point, the text does not tell us that Jeremiah knows anything about it. 
He doesn't know what God's doing because we haven't gotten down these verses. But God was in control. What a picture. You and I, we don't know what God's doing, and yet He's working. He's working in a way for the purpose of bringing about things that we have no idea about. So it's so important for me to be obedient in the things He tells me. Notice, secondly, in verse 6 through 7, the prophet Jeremiah then was commanded to retrieve the sash. The command to Jeremiah came after many days, he tells us. Now, we don't know exactly how long this was. doesn't declare us. He's gone away two months. Now he's been back. How long he's been back? Give him a month, another two months. You know, you've got about five months or even longer. You take your pick. But two and two uh, for the round trip and whatever interval time. But here we have the prophet being obedient. He still doesn't have all the picture. But he's being obedient. He's not complaining. Now, you know that in Scripture we have often texts that show us that the man complains against God or argues against God. We have it in Isaiah. We have it in Jeremiah also. Later on, Jeremiah is going to get in trouble. In fact, in chapter 15, God almost kicks him out as a prophet. He renews his commission because he charged God foolishly. Jeremiah got in trouble with God. Pretty heavy. But right here, he's being obedient. A month one way and a month back, the prophet once again asked, is asked to do things that to him perhaps didn't make any sense. What are you doing, Lord? But yet he was called to obey. Notice Jeremiah went on and dug up the sash and where he had hidden it. And the objection of some at this point might be, well, it would be impossible for the sash to be there. The Euphrates? Listen, listen. Whenever you read anything in Scripture, don't ever leave this factor out of the equation. God. The Jordan parts at flood season. The Red Sea parts. The walls of Jericho fall down. The sun goes back a certain amount of degrees. God. There's nothing impossible for God. In fact, he tells Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything impossible for me? No. Nothing at all. You remove God from the equation of your life, everything will be impossible. Absolutely everything. Jeremiah looked at the sash and it was ruined and profitable for nothing. The word ruined means marred, injured, spoiled, corrupted. The same word will be used for the clay vessel of the potter in chapter 18 verse 4. Good for nothing, only to be thrown out. This was the condition of the people at this point. But God was working. Jeremiah didn't know exactly what was going on. Why do I have to go? Lord, can I go down to the pool of Gihon and bury it there? Can I go to the Jordan? I mean, you know, it's not that far. No, I want you to go to the Euphrates. You see, where was it where they were going to go into captivity? Babylon. By the Euphrates. How interesting. You remember when the Lord came down to Ananias in Acts chapter 9? In Damascus, he said, Ananias, I want you to go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus and pray for him. And Ananias says, Lord, don't you know about this man? He kills Christians. He incarcerates them. He says, lighten up, Francis. He says, he's a chosen vessel to me. You see, Ananias didn't know what God had just done. 
When God asks you to do something, you do it because you don't know what He's done or what He's going to do. The wisest conclusion you and I can ever come to in our lives is, I don't know everything. And I'm never really in control of anything. God's in control of my life. So important. Some of the things that God will ask of us at times will not always make sense to us. But they will to God. Some of God's commands will be thought of as a waste of time. Why does God want me to do this? Others will be thought of as a waste of energy and work. Why should I do this? It's just, it's gonna, I'm gonna have to do it over again. Why does he want me to do this right now? Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Paul told the Corinthians, moreover, it is required that one, meaning a steward, be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 The very first words out of the mouth of Saul of Tarsus, the killer of Christians, when God saved him on Damascus Road was this. Listen, what would you have your servant to do, Lord? In Acts 9. That should be my first words and my words to him every time. What would you have your servant to do, Lord? The instructions of Yahweh to the prophet was to teach the prophet about his obedience. Notice, thirdly, the interpretation by Yahweh to the prophet is found in verses 8 through 11. We're not left to our own devices. He interprets it for us. He wants to make sure that the application is understood. Notice first in verse 8 and 9, the ruined condition of the sash was an illustration of what Yahweh was going to do to the nation. Mark well the number of times the prophet goes out of his way to point out that Yahweh spoke to him. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11. This was not Jeremiah's message. This was the message of Yahweh. Notice in verse 9, the Lord would do in like manner to the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So Yahweh would ruin the nation due to her pride, just like this sash had become ruined. He would do it because of their pride. The pride that stands in the face of God and says, I'm going to do it and so what? Once again, as parents, you've had your kids, you've drawn that line, and you say, if you put your toe over that line, I'm going to knock you out, and they're going to go. <laughs> hey, be a man of your word. Knock them out. <laughs> Don't disappoint your children with threats. <laughs> Yahweh focuses on the great pride of Jerusalem. No one can conquer us. We've got the temple of God. We've got the ark of God. Notice, secondly, the description of the people was placed in relationship to the condition of the sash in verse 10. They were evil people. They refused to hear Yahweh's word. They followed the dictates of their own hearts, walking after other gods to serve them and to worship them. We've seen this throughout. 
the result would be that their condition would be just like the sash, profitable for nothing. For nothing. They would not be able to be what God created them and chose them for. To be the people of God. The community of God's redeemed. They would not affect the lives of others for salvation or for the glory of God. Israel failed in her mission. She was to minister the word of God and bring the nations of the Gentiles into the nation of Israel. Read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, verse 3. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Abraham. The Gentiles were always included. The Old Testament is centripetal. The nations were to come into and proselyte. We, the church, are centrifugal. We go out to the nations. Israel failed in her mission. She became self-righteous. She became complacent. She became sinful. She became ruined. Notice, thirdly, the privilege of the nation was illustrated by the design of the sash. Yahweh had taken the nation to cling to him as the sash clings to the waist of a man. God wanted a nation close to him. The word cling means to grab tightly. Once again, you as a parent, you go with your child, he's young, and you're in your house, you, you let him roam around, but you walk into a busy mall and you grab his hand and say, stay right here, stay close to me. Because you're afraid he's going to get lost. You want him close to you. This is what God wanted his people to do, stay close to cling to him. The people of Yahweh were to live in fellowship with him. The provisions were the blood sacrifice and the law. And they thought that they were sufficient in themselves without obedience. No sacrifice is sufficient without obedience. In fact, it cancels out the sacrifice. Notice the whole house of Israel and Judah are included. For they had been God's status symbol to the nation. All the nations around them. When people saw Israel, they were to immediately identify them with Yahweh. And when the people saw Yahweh intervening on Israel's behalf, they were to identify Yahweh with the people. If my wife goes somewhere and people know her, when they see her, they're eventually going to say, they're going to be looking for me. Where's Xavier? Because they usually know where she is. I'm there. We're one. And the same with me. This was Israel and Yahweh. It was a marriage. Remember the betrothal that he talked about in the opening chapters. The love of the espousal. When you spend time, you're together. But what has happened? You've been estranged to me now. Now the reason being was that they became his people. Notice, for renown. There's a purpose behind it. Which means for praise and adoration. Then he says for praise, which means to sing to Yahweh. So one is that as people, as they live for God, people would, would praise God for their lives and adore God. But now it's a personal expression of praise to Yahweh in song or in, in, in melody, whatever it may be. And then for glory, which means beauty or honor. That when people look to them, they would see God as the one behind the benefit of their life, the good of their life. The prosperity of their life. 
But the outcome was that the people would not hear. Tragic words. The sharp contrast of their privilege and the rebellion is marked by the word, but. Even as the father who looked to his son and said, son, if you just straighten up, quit hanging around those guys and go to work, go to school, get, get your diploma. You know, I'll stand behind you. I'll do what I can for you. But his son says, don't try to control me. This is my life. I know what I'm doing. The people became ingrates and dishonorable by their defilement, rebellion, and pride. Even as the prophet was told in chapter 1. The nature of man is bent towards sin. He can do nothing else. In fact, I can give you no better illustration than verse 22 and 23 of this chapter. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, which is a euphemism for being illicit and promiscuous. To be humbled as a prostitute, they lift the skirts over their heads. And in captivity of war too. Your heels were made bare. And here's a punchline. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. An Ethiopian skin is black. If he could change his skin to white, brown, or yellow, then men could do good. A leper has spots. If he could change them to stripes or make them disappear, then man could do good. Pretty sober words. Pretty straightforward. The answer is, it's impossible for man to do good apart from God. God will at times, after so many attempts of patience and mercy, turn a person over to their sin. We have many examples in Scripture. In fact, Second Peter 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world, mark that real well, after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they are again entangled in them, meaning the sin, and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. I have known and know people who God has cleaned up from the cesspool of the world. Done an incredible work in their lives. And years after, they've been entangled again. And today, their latter end is worse than the first. By choice. There comes a time, there is a line, we don't know where, where God and all His love can do nothing. At this point in Jeremiah's book, God has already said it's too late. But he keeps declaring their sin. But he says it's too late. He's told the prophet not to pray many times. It is a sad day. In fact, Paul turned the young man in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in hope that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus if he repented. That was the hope. Now, we know... In fact, about that young man that he did repent. But there's no guarantee that everybody repents. We don't know. The little epistle of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 16, says this. If anyone sees his brother, Christian, his brother, sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, in other words, pray for him, 
and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about it. In other words, there's a line where God gives people up. Read Romans chapter 1. Unclean thought of all affections, reprobate mind, reject it. Pretty heavy. God will tell Jeremiah, even as we go on one more time, a few more times, don't pray for them any longer. The promiscuous person often today has been ravished by disease or shattered emotions. The adulterer has a divided heart and an expensive upkeep with divorce and two families. The party animal suffers in health, satisfaction in life, and really not having true friends, and he ends up all alone and lonely. All he has is memories that serve him for condemnation and guilt. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. The greater the light and privilege a person has in relation to the Lord Jesus, the more accountability God holds that person to it. And if he sins or she sins, the greater the blasphemy is against God. Even as Nathan the prophet told David, because of what you've done, David, you have caused the enemies of God to blaspheme him. Because they believe you were a godly man. And you took this man's wife, though you have many, and you laid with her. You got her pregnant. You brought her husband home from the battlefield, tried to deceive him and get him to sleep with his wife, and he wouldn't. He's more honorable than you, so you had him killed in battle. And it's been almost a year. And because of this, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme God because they thought you were a godly man. Sin will make you good for nothing. Good for nothing. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.20. The interpretation by Yahweh to the prophet was to teach us about sin. Jeremiah the prophet was prepared by Yahweh to preach his fifth sermon. By this object of this sash, that I'm sure at first he said, what's this for? It was to reveal the ruined condition of the nation due to their sin. And he lays it out in these three progressive movements with the punchline at the end that you and I might learn. The proclamation of Yahweh to the prophet was to teach the people about their sin. The instruction of Yahweh to the prophet was to teach the prophet about his obedience. And the interpretation by Yahweh to the prophet was to teach us you and I about sin maybe next time you read Jeremiah 13 1 through 11 you'll look at it a little different you won't say I don't know why God uses all these stupid pictures he signs I don't understand this I don't like the Old Testament it's boring I love the Old Testament it nails me every time I love picture forms (laughs) That's the best way children learn. May God give us wisdom to learn from the ruined lives of others. And we not go that way. Sin will make you good for nothing. Pastor.
Pastor Xavier Ruiz, winding down our Simple Truth study of Jeremiah chapter 13 with a challenge to repent from sin and choose to obey God. And just before we close for today, let me mention that copies of this Simple Truth study titled Good for Nothing are available on CD for only $4. And we'll be including everything Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together as well. Once again, the title to ask for is simply Good for Nothing, or just mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then be back for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com